Welcome to this message from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon. City Bible Church is a vibrant community of people with one common desire to experience God, enjoy people, and celebrate life. Well, I'd like for you, with your Bibles, to turn to 1 John chapter 5. And uh, this summer, we've been enjoying uh, going through the 1 uh, John, John's first epistle. And uh, we're up to chapter 5 now, so we're uh, nearing the end. This is the last chapter of the book. Have you been enjoying this series? It's kind of cool to get into a book of the Bible and just kind of chew on it and let it get into you. And, and uh, Pastor Frank and the others that have ministered through this series have uh, done a great job. And we're coming now to chapter 5, and we're going to uh, look at verses 1 to 13. And our theme has been live like Jesus. And uh, this is, of course, uh, what John's talking to us about, is how to live like Jesus, love like Jesus, how to share his love. And uh, today, this section, a a lot of scholars believe this is kind of the conclusion of the book, and then the last half of the chapter is just kind of stuff that John added on, just a variety of thoughts. And and, uh, whether that's true or not, in this section, he does really kind of get down to the the crux of the matter. It's like, if you're going to live like Jesus, if you're going to share his love, if you're going to be like Jesus in the world, then you've got to have faith in him because it all happens through faith. And so our, our, our theme today is believing in Jesus, recognizing that faith is the key to living like Jesus. And I'm going to read through these 13 verses now. I want you to follow along in whatever translation or paraphrase that you have with you today. And uh, we'll just really get into this. Now, you know, John's kind of the best person to clue us into Jesus because he was arguably Jesus' best friend. There was the 70 that Jesus uh, related to. Then there was the 12, you know, disciples. Among the 12, there were the three, Peter, James, and John, the big three. They were with Jesus at times that nine of the others weren't, you know, like at the Mount of Transfiguration, et cetera. So he had circles of relationship. But among those three, John was the one that leaned in close to him, that he was more affectionate with. He he was probably Jesus' best friend. John knew Jesus not only as the the miracle worker and the crowd teacher, he knew Jesus behind scenes, what he was like in private times when the crowds weren't around, when he wasn't out on a preaching mission somewhere. Uh, John really had access to see who Jesus really was and what he's really like. And for John to be so excited about Jesus should be encouraging to us. How many of you have had somebody tell you about somebody else and they weren't that excited about him? You know, but, but John's like, he's, he's, he still thinks Jesus is amazing and he's, he's presenting Jesus to us. And of course, he wrote the gospel of John, the last of the four gospels that were written. And, and he, it comes from such a close up kind of perspective. And it's really good for us to get that perspective of someone who was that close to Jesus during his life uh, here on earth. And I think he's obviously a best person here to clue us in, to make Jesus more real to us, more personal, so that our relationship with the Lord can be real and personal. You're not a Christian because you go to church. You're not a Christian because you have a Bible. You're only a Christian if you have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Christianity is more of a relationship than it is a religion. It has religious components, and that's not all bad, but, but it's essentially having a relationship with Jesus. And John's trying to help us have a better, more meaningful, closer relationship with Jesus. Now, as I read these 13 verses, 
I'd like for you to notice the words believe and faith. And I just want you to see how woven through these 13 verses, John keeps referencing faith as being the key to each of these issues that he raises. Everybody ready? Got your Bible? Look on the person next to you. Uh, I'm going to be uh, referencing this morning both the, the NIV and the New Living uh, paraphrase. Uh, both of those I'll be referencing along the way. So you read along in whichever one you have. Verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world. And we achieve this victory through faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 6. And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit, who is truth, confirms it with his testimony. So we have these three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and all three agree. Since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God, and God has testified about his son. Verse 10, all who believe in the son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe this are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe what God has testified about his son. Verse 11, and this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Now notice in the passage how the key to everything is faith. The the knowing that you're born again, that you have a whole new life, knowing how to love God and love his children to keep his commandments, knowing how to relate to the world and to overcome the, the, the part of the world that opposes God and how to conquer all of that. It takes faith and you have to believe and believe the testimony and the threefold testimony that's referred to there. And, and, uh, and then uh, the last one of believing in the name you have e- eternal life. Everything comes to us through faith. None of the good things referenced here are realized apart from faith. If we don't believe, we won't receive. Repeat that after me. If I don't believe, I won't receive. It's as simple as that. Now, we have to understand that faith doesn't start with us. Faith is our response to God's initiative. Faith is not us trying to get God to do what we want. Faith is our response to what God's initiating that he wants. Faith starts with God. Paul said in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by a word from God. It starts with God. So faith is not, okay, I got to somehow get myself to believe and God, you know, I believe you. So you have to do what I want. Faith more is like recognizing what God is initiating, whatever he says, whatever he wants, whatever he initiates, and then agreeing with that and cooperating with that and flowing with that. So it starts with God. Now, this... um, you know, the, the idea that we can live like Jesus is a pretty big one. I mean, 
how many of you, we've been going through this series talking about living like Jesus, kind of feel like trying to live like Jesus is kind of a challenge. It's a pretty daunting challenge anyway. Uh, For me, it's like, okay, well, sometimes I feel like I'm kind of doing what Jesus would do in that situation. Other times it's like, I don't know. You know, I, don't, I think I'm too selfish still. I'm too self-absorbed. I don't always get it right. I don't care enough about other people. You know, how many of you have found that you know, living like Jesus is a challenge? Anybody got that down pat yet? Okay. So what we're asking, you know, what we're you know, stirring our faith for here is something that it really takes some faith to believe that this could actually happen, that I could actually become like Jesus. And we're not saying that you're going to become Jesus. We, one Jesus is all we need. So... If you're thinking you're going to become Jesus, you know, get over yourself. You know, uh, so they're, they're, we're not going to become Jesus, but to be like him, to let his life and light and love shine through us and, and to be an instrument in his hand to uh, you know, change a, a broken world. I mean, that, that bring healing and life and salvation. I mean, that, that's part of why we have this life already is so that we can pass it on to others. And, you know, honestly... God must have a lot of faith for him to believe that he could make us like Jesus and that we would live like Jesus. That takes some faith on God's part, don't you think? Now, don't look at the person next to you and say, yeah, it take a lot of faith to believe that you could look like, <laughs> you know. And by the way, we tend to want to focus on how others are doing living like Jesus as a distraction so we don't think about how we're doing living like Jesus. So stay, stay focused on yourself here. There's, this is an elbows in message. No, you need that, you know. So I want you to stay focused on yourself, not every other, every other person you know that needs to be more like Jesus. You know, let's stay focused on his work in our life. But for God to, you know, for God to say that we could be like him and that his, I mean, you know, think about this. For Jesus to entrust us with the Great Commission, that was risky. If, I was thinking about this one day, Jesus by now could have saved the whole world without us. He didn't have to turn this over to us. He didn't have to give the great commission, go back to heaven, send the spirit, say, I know you need help, so I'm going to send the spirit. He could have by now stayed here and he could have in 2,000 years, he could have visited every people group on the planet easily. Remember with his glorified body, he could get around pretty quick. So, I mean, by now, he could have gone to every village, every town, every people group on the planet. He could have done some miracles to get their attention, told the story, showed the scars, had the altar call, wrapped this whole thing up a long time ago. You're looking at me like a tree full of owls. (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) This is how my mind works. I think of things. It's like, God, why, why didn't you just do it yourself? I mean, did, didn't you know we were going to make a royal mess of things for 2,000 years? You could have done it better without us. But instead, he said, you know what? I've done my part. Now I'm going to send you another spirit, the spirit, send you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go back to heaven. You're going to do this. You're going to do greater works than I did. Here's the great commission. Go into every, all the world and preach the gospel, every creation, every family. You know, here you go. Ready, set, go. And we're like, uh, live like Jesus. I mean, this was either the dumbest idea anybody ever had, or else God has a lot of faith to believe that he can pull this off through us. Are you with me? 
If it takes faith on his part, it, it should be no surprise that it's going to take faith on our part. So I'm here today to get us in the next few minutes to stir our faith a little bit to believe that maybe some areas of our life where we haven't been living like Jesus, that by his help and with his grace, the power of the blood, the word, the spirit, we can start living like Jesus a little more. Everybody in? Okay, now as we move through this, I'm going to go back and go through the, the passage verse by verse again. As we move through this, I want you to see that there are six main benefits of believing in Jesus. And remember, there's a difference between believing someone and believing in someone. You could believe what somebody says, for instance, say, oh yeah, I believe that's true. I think I heard that already, so I guess I can trust that what you're saying is the truth. That doesn't mean that you'll always believe that person. But to believe in someone goes way beyond just believing something that they said or did. Believing in someone means you, you trust their integrity entirely. You trust their character. You trust their motives. You're, you, you, you would put your life in their hands. It's a whole nother level. It's not just some mental agreement on a certain level over certain things. Believing in someone, and, and we're to believe in Christ, believe into, meaning we trust him entirely, completely with every aspect of our life and being, and everything he says is totally true. And we're going to, uh, in other words, entirely trust him. Well, if we do that, there's some cool things that happen. Number one, believing in Jesus makes you born of God. You can't be a whole new person without a whole new faith. Instead of trusting yourself and believing others and believing what the devil says about you and believing public, you know, friends' opinions, etc., you gotta get down to, I believe what God says about me more than what everybody else says about me. You've gotta start agreeing with God with how he sees you, what he believes is your potential, what he thinks he can make of your life, and it starts with this new birth. It starts with being as the NIV says, everyone who believes that Christ, Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, we haven't had time through this series to do this. I don't even have time today with just 13 verses to do this, which is a really cool study. And that is to connect everything that John is writing in this letter back with statements that he heard Jesus make. And you can, I could do it with every verse here, and I'll, I'll do it a couple of times just to illustrate as we go along. But when he says, everyone that believes is born of God, well, remember John chapter three with the famous conversation with Nicodemus, I call it the Nick at night conversation. Nicodemus came to him at night, you know, and asked him, you know, and, and the famous statement about you must be born again and born from above and the water and the spirit. And, and, and in that is verse 16, and God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's, it's a famous, you know, passage that John recorded for us. And obviously that's in the back of his mind as he writes this first verse, you know, and everyone that believes is born of God. You're a whole new person. Doesn't doesn't it take faith to believe that you're a brand new person? Because you still have some of the old hangups. And you, it's still easy to do some of the old stuff and think in some of the old ways. But we're supposed to believe that Christ can make us an entirely new person. Like Paul put it, old things are passing away and everything is becoming new. That takes faith to really believe that and appropriate it and live that out. How many of you found that some things in your life have changed since you started walking with Jesus? How many of you would say that there's some more things that could use some improvement? So it's like it's happened, but it's still happening. And it's true, but it's still becoming true. And it's all done, but it's still being realized which is 
So much the case with so much of what the New Testament says to us. Well, we have a brand new life. And here he elaborates and says it makes us part of God's family. That this having a brand new life, being a new, the new birth, births us into a new family, which leads me to number two. The second benefit here of believing in Jesus is that it helps you love God and others. It helps you love God and it helps you love others. He says at the end of verse one, everyone who loves the father loves his children too. So being born again, having this new life, what you do when you're born, it's kind of basic instinct to love your parents and to love your family. Now, not everybody does because sin and selfishness and hurtful things get in the way of that, but it's kind of a base instinct to love who begat you and to love who else is begotten by them. And these two are, of course, always tied together in John's mind, and we've done several passages that are more amplified than this one on how loving God and loving others is just two parts of the same experience. John sees them as inseparable. You can't say you love God if you don't love his kids. And you can't love his kids without loving God. And they're just, it's all intertwined. You know, it's, you can, and you can distinguish them, but you can't separate them. So here he weaves them together again, loving God and loving others. And when you're a whole new person, you have a fresh opportunity to love God in a way that you didn't before and to love others the way you didn't, a way you didn't before. But notice this phrase, everyone who loves the father loves his children too. Um, I went to, um, last weekend, I went to three weddings. Glenda and I went to, went to three weddings. Three different couples got married, and it's kind of a typical, week, typical weekend in the summer around here. You know, it's like lots of weddings go on. So one on Friday night, two on Saturday, and, and each one of them was beautiful. And, and, of course, we love the people involved. That's why we're there. And, um, but, you know, a lot of guys only go to weddings be, to please their wives, you know. Are you aware of that? Now, I'm trying to be a better man than that, and I really do care about everybody getting married, and, you know, it's like I want to be there for them. And, but, you know, three weddings, and, you know, weddings are all kind of alike. And uh, so my mind starts wandering a little bit, you know. So after three weddings, I, I, I made this observation to Glenda on the way home. They were all beautiful and wonderful, but I said, you know, isn't it interesting that the attendance at all three weddings, there were as many or more friends of the parents there than there were peers of the bride and groom. You know, every wedding starts late, so you got time to check out the crowd. <laughs> okay, am I walking through a minefield here? <laughs> no, I'm just making this observation. And, and then I started thinking back to our wedding, and I thought, you know, uh, we got married in Kansas City, Glenda's hometown, and I remember being so happy that so many friends of her parents came because they gave us better gifts. <laughs> Glenda's office at our home, you know, we have home offices as well, and, you know, she has one counter that's stacked with wedding gifts, you know, because we, we get to go to a lot of weddings. I really enjoy it. Anyway, but, but I've, you know, I observe things. Well, why is that? Because if, I've noticed this through the years that friends that I have, I tend to be interested in their kids. What does John say? If you love the father, you'll love his children too. Okay, maybe that wasn't the best way to illustrate this, but here's the point. 
sometimes it takes faith to do that because not all of God's kids are always lovable. And some of God's kids can do mean things to you. And so how, how, do we, how do we love, you know, it's easier to love God. I mean, he's perfect, you know, who wouldn't love him? He's so amazing, you know, but his kids are not always so amazing. <laughs> and they're not always so lovable. So how do we know our love is really genuine? And how do we know it's, you know, really pure? And, and uh, going on to verse two, it says, we know we love God's children if we love God and keep his commandments. Now, previously in the letter, he said, you know you love God by how you love others. So how do we know our love for God is genuine and not just some religious trip that doesn't really affect our hearts and lives? It's because we love others. You can't say you love God and then hate everybody he created. But notice in this verse, he flips it and he says, well, how do we know that our love for others is genuine? Like, how do you know that the reason you love other people people that are, and let's just start with the community of faith that you're a part of, the church that you're a part of. And of course, we're supposed to love everybody and love the world, et cetera, like he does. But just starting with the people that you spiritually hate, that should be the easiest for you to love, the ones that are, have the same spiritual dad and, you know, go in the same direction you are. It's like if you, how do you know that your love for them is, is really God's kind of love? There's different kinds of love and they're all good, but, but how do you know you have God's kind of love for them? There's, there's some love that's honestly pretty selfish. Like I love this person because of what they do for me or I love that person because of how they make me feel or I really like them as a friend because I, I have fun with them or I, you know, we enjoy hanging out so I love them. Well, what about the person you don't enjoy hanging out with? What about the person who's not so nice to you? And by the way, if you didn't find good friends here, would you still be a part of this church? Is this just a social club that we're doing here? Are we just here for the friends and the good times? I mean, you can get that elsewhere, have more hangovers that way, but you know, there's other contexts, you know, where you can just have a group of friends to hang with, you know, I mean, this is like a, hopefully a better version of that, but you know, and I'm not saying any of that's wrong or bad. I think you should have friends in church, think we should hang out, have good times, enjoy God together, et cetera. But he's saying, you know, how, how do you know that it's the real thing? What, that's God's kind of love. That's totally selfless. And he says, here's two ways you can tell whether your love for others is really genuine. One, does your connection with that other person spur you on to love God more? You know how you can have relationships that are good for you and relationships that are bad for you, and spiritually speaking? And how do you know that that connection with that person is, is really the best kind of connection? By Do you end up both loving God more? Are you, are you that kind of influence on each other? Because loving God should make you love others more and loving others the right way should make you love God more. Everybody follow this? The second one is, does hanging out with that person make you want to get more serious about obeying everything God's asking of you? Does it make you want to keep God's commandments? Or does hanging out with that person make you want to rationalize your way out of some of God's commandments so that you can enjoy each other's company? In other words, John's giving us a way to kind of measure this. How do you know if you... And, and by the way, hearkening back to the words of Jesus, in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So obeying God and love are all wrapped together. In fact, that leads me to the next one. Let's go on to number three. Another benefit of 
believing in Jesus is it helps you obey God. It's just a lot easier to believe God when you're really believing in Jesus. True faith always leads to love for God and others, and true love always results in obedience. In John 14, 15, I just referred to, if you love me, keep my commandments. What is, is Jesus just using this love thing to manipulate us into doing things the way he wants? Or is pleasing him a part of loving him? Well, if you don't trust Jesus' motive, then you'll think he's just trying to mess with your fun. Or he's just trying to make you weird with all his commandments and all these rules and how to be holy and all this stuff. It's like, come on, Jesus. You know, it's like, I think you're cool and all, but do I have to live as weird as you did? Do I have to be that straight? Do I have to be that holy? You know, do I have to, do I have, to have some people not like me because I'm so different? You know, it's like, And do I really have to go tell people about you? I mean, can I just kind of be nice to them and make them like me without them ever knowing that I'm really for you? You know, it's like... How do you know if you love God? If you obey him. Love inspires devoted action. When you love somebody, you want to please them. How do you know if you love God? If what he asks of you is not a burden. Notice the statement here. Verse three, loving God means keeping his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, if obeying God is some big, hard, heavy thing to do, you don't love him enough. Because when you love somebody, it's no chore to want to bless them. Have you ever asked somebody to do something? If you're a parent, I'm sure you have. If you've ever asked somebody to do something and then they do it but begrudgingly? It's like, you know, you ask your child to do a chore, take out the trash, whatever. It's like, oh, do I have to? This is a concentration camp. This is some kind of a police. Why do I have to? You know, you're... When my parents asked me to do chores when I was young, you're just trying to make a housewife out of me. Anyway, I needed to be more like Jesus. You know? But, you know, when, when somebody has a begrudging attitude, then you wish you hadn't even asked them. It's like, ah, just do it myself. It's like, you know, unless, of course, they're your kid, and then you've got to train them to be a better person, so you, you keep after it. But, you know, what does it mean his commandments are not burdensome? It means that his laws are not unreasonable. What God asks of us is not unreasonable. The only stuff he's trying to tell us to get rid of in our life is the stuff that's going to kill us and hurt the people around us anyway. His laws are not unreasonable. His way of living is the best. It's the way human was meant to live. It's, it's not unreasonable, so it's not burdensome in the sense that it's unreasonable. And secondly, his laws are not beyond our ability to follow with his help. God never commands something that he won't enable. He doesn't ask us to do something impossible and then stand back and mock us for not being able to do it. He's not mean-spirited. He's not just trying to mess with us. He's just trying to free us from our stupidity and selfishness so that we can have a better life. 
And so when he comes and asks you to give up something or change something or stop doing this, or, you know, and it's between you and him. I mean, there's some basic rules that are true for everybody, but there's a lot of stuff that it's more personal that the Holy Spirit will deal with you about because he knows what you need to do in your life and in your life circumstance and life processes so that you're an all out for Jesus kind of person and not distracted by something else. Well, those who find God's commandments unreasonable don't really want to follow him. And those who complain about it aren't really in love with him. And those who are always doing the teenage kind of, can I do this and still be a Christian? Don't have their hearts set in the right direction. They care more about their fun than they do about pleasing God and changing the world. Come on, his commandments are not burdensome. It's not that hard. It's not that tough. If you love God, it's like whatever you want, Jesus, because I know it's just going to make my life better. Amen? Now you can elbow somebody and say, I needed to hear that. (laughs) Well, that leads me to number four. Let's move on. The fourth benefit here of believing in Jesus is it helps you overcome the world helps you overcome the world. Notice verse four. Every child of God defeats this evil world and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the son of God. The world here is not just referring to people in general. It's referring to the world apart from God or the world in opposition to God. Um, There's, uh, you know, that there's verses like John 16, verse 33, where Jesus said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Like cheer up. I've already conquered it all. It's not that tough. So are we supposed to conquer the world and uh, we overcome, which is a fighting word, a military word. Are we supposed to battle with the world? And well, but then Jesus also said, and John recorded it himself. Remember John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, so Are we supposed to love the world or are we supposed to battle with the world? And sometimes as Christians, we get caught in an awkwardness between these two things. That God wants to use us as agents of redemption to save the world. And that means you got to love people and you got to be out there connecting with people. And you can't go live isolated from people who don't know God and then win them to Jesus. So we've got to be in the world, but as the old saying goes, be in the world, but not of the world. It's like, we've got to be in it, but then how do we end up not becoming like it? Because if you try to influence somebody, it's easy to get into, well, we've got to impress them to get their attention. So how do you impress the world? Well, you've got to impress them on them, their terms. So that means you have to adopt some of their value systems so that they will listen to you and think that you're cool. And then once they think you're cool, but by the time you've adopted their value system, you have nothing different to offer them once you get their attention. And once they think you're cool, you've so compromised yourself that now you've got nothing different to offer. And the church has been wrestling with this for centuries now. And we swing back and forth with a, it's like, well, we're going to be, we want to connect and relate to the world and then we lose our standards and we don't have anything different to offer them anymore. And then it's like, well, we're just like you. We have all the same problems, make all the same messes, have all the same alleys, but at least we relate. 
Or the church swings the other way and tries to live separate and holy and distant and different and you know, totally different lifestyle. But then and by disconnecting so that we're not soiled by our connection with the world. And then that has no power because we're all isolated. Nobody wants to listen to us because we are weird. So for 2,000 years, you know, we've been swinging back and forth between these two extremes. How are we going to get this right? How are you going to get it right? What motivates you in, in all of this? Is the biggest thing in your mind like, well, I don't want to be viewed by the people I work with as some religious freak who's trying to shove it down their throat, so I'm just going to do lifestyle evangelism. Hopefully, by 10 years from now, they'll think maybe something's different about me. Is that working for you? <laughs> it's like, well, I want them to think I'm cool, so if I go partying with them, at least they'll know that I want to be on their level. And then it's, by the time you get around to wanting to help them with their pain, they realize you got nothing different to offer them. So how do we, how do we love the world and yet overcome the world? Are you into this with me? Jesus got it figured out. Interestingly enough, he did pretty good on this. Sinners kind of like being around him. The religious people were kind of freaked out by it. But sinners like being around him. But he was the straightest stick around. I mean, he didn't compromise. He didn't bend. He was holy. So here's, here's the terms I like to use. Jesus was uncompromisingly holy totally pure, but at the same time, uncondemningly compassionate. That's tough to do. To do both of those at the same time, that's really tough. We tend to swing one way or the other. It's like, well, I want to be holy, so I got to get away and stay away. And, cause, and, and sometimes you do have to distance yourself temporarily to you. The Holy Spirit can change you from the inside out. And sometimes that's necessary because the influence flows the wrong direction. And that's your cue. If the influence is flowing the wrong direction, then you need to back off until you can get it together so you can make sure the influence flows the right direction and the connection that you have with the world. But Jesus was able to be uncompromisingly holy and uncondemningly compassionate at the same time. Let's live like Jesus. Let's do both. Let's be pursuing purity with a passion, but be totally uncondemning towards those who don't have it yet. Instead of the way I'm going to feel better about myself is by feeling that that person is worse than me. So I'll judge you as a way to feeling not so bad about the halfway problems I have. The only way to get out of this, and, and by the way, we tend to want there to be this big middle ground, you know, where it's like um, we want to have this sense of, you know, middle ground where the world is, you know, we know there's some stuff really bad and there's some stuff really good, but we just basically want to live right here in this neutral area. And we say things like, I know this probably doesn't get me closer to God, but I don't think it'll hurt me either. And it was Jesus who said, you're either for me or against me. You're either moving towards God or you're moving away from God. We, there's no big middle ground here. We all just hang out and have fun and nothing really matters. It's, it's a matter of where is your heart heading? 
Is it heading towards God or is it heading away from God? If you're playing the game of, can I do this and still be a Christian? Your heart's obviously pointed in the wrong direction. Rather than, how can I be more like Jesus, share his, his love with those around me? How can I live this out in sincerity and with passion and seeing fruit in my life? Now, it's, you know, restricting activities and having standards and fences won't change your heart, but they can buy you some time for the Holy Spirit to do it. And it's interesting to me watching how this changes over time. Like you'll see a movement of churches and Christians that'll get real serious about Jesus and God and really making a difference and spiritually passionate. And they'll really focus on getting things right. And they create a culture around that. And then over time, it kind of works and they're successful. And then they just want to have more fun and be blessed and hang out. And they don't want to, you know, be so serious about it. And then over time, the standards degenerate. And then they just live like the world a couple generations later. And then a new group jumps up and says, no, we're going to really be radical Christians. We're really going into this. And so we're going to separate ourselves from this. We're going to do this. And then it's like, can we break out of this cycle? In my, my father's generation, it was like, can you be a Christian and go to a bowling alley? And then you move a generation, it's like, can you be a Christian and still go to dance clubs? Recently, I had somebody actually have a Christian ask them to ask me, is, is, could it be okay for a Christian to go to a strip club? As long as it's classy and not gross. I'm like... Say what? We've come a long way. Or in one generation, you can't even use playing cards because they're used for gambling. Next generation, well, it's okay to use cards as long as you don't gamble. Next generation, is it's okay to gamble as long as... And then next generation, well, as long as it's a little bit of money. And then next generation, well, as long as you're not, you know, totally ruin your family's, you know, financial state. The point is not where the fence is, the point is, which way is your heart heading? And in all of this, Paul's statement in Romans 12 is, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What's going on in your heart and mind? Which way is your heart heading? Well, I don't want to be a legalist. You know what a legalist is? It's anybody that has a higher standard than you do. Okay, moving on. Let's go to the next point. Everybody okay? All right, well, I think I made the point. Let's go on to uh, number five. I got two more, and I'll do it in just the last couple minutes here. Number five, the next benefit of uh, believing in Jesus is it gives you confidence in God's word. This whole section in verses six to 10 about testimony and witness and two or three and blood and water and this whole thing, it's, there's one main reason it's there is that John is, is countering the Gnostic heresies that were around in his day. And there was a guy that was a contemporary of his, his name was Serinthus, starts with a C, Serinthus. Not a guy mentioned in the Bible, but in early church history is referred to. And, and he was a Gnostic teacher and he taught that uh, Jesus was, was man, and the Gnostics didn't like to think that God became a man because that would sully God to be so intertwined with man. And so at Jesus' baptism, Serinthus taught that, that the divine Jesus came down and partnered with the human Jesus, but then before he went to the cross, the divine Jesus left because divinity can't be touched with sin and death and suffering and all that stuff. 
And it was a weird heresy, and John's dealing with that. It's part of the background for why he writes this section the way it is. And, and, but by trying to protect God from contact with human pain, it actually removed him from the act of redemption. So the, it, it was a heresy, and it didn't work, and I'm glad it's not around that much today. God was in the death of Jesus every bit as much as he was in his life. And we have a God who cared enough to become one of us and shared in our pain, took our sin, was there for us. And of course, that's the way John sees this. But why do we have faith in Jesus? Verse, he says, because he was revealed as the Messiah at his baptism, because he shed his blood and dying for our sins. I mean, who are you going to believe? The, the person who died for you to take your sin, the Holy Spirit who bears witness to him. And then he does the triple witness thing. You, you know, nobody could be convicted of a crime in Old Testament time by just one witness. There had to be two or three witnesses. John obviously references that when he refers to the, the threefold witness here, which makes an airtight case. Jesus is the son of God. You can trust him with your whole life. And then on top of that, he says, and by the way, the father himself bore witness to Jesus. And this bearing witness was a big theme in the gospel of John. And so he's kind of referencing that and summing it up here. And he says, and, and by the way, when it's all come down to it, you either believe God or you think he's a liar. So pick a team. So we're all picking a team, right? Okay, picking the right team. Let me go to the last one, number six. In the last few verses, he says the, the benefit of believing in Jesus is that it gives you eternal life. God's life. Now, the word eternal here is not just, it's not just life that keeps going. Like it's not just referring to duration. It's referring to quality. You could live for a long time and be miserable the whole time. So it's not just duration. That's the goal. It's the quality of how, what that life is like during that duration or through that duration. So the life here that's being referred to is not, it's not just a ticket to heaven that's being referenced here, as cool as that is. It's referring to a kind of life that you get to live on the way to heaven. It's the life of God. What, what's being promised to us here and what we need to have faith for is that the very life of God himself could be imparted to us and we could be affected by his life. We could benefit from his life. We could live out his life. Let me just read to you five statements, just five aspects of this life of God. In God, there is peace. Therefore, eternal life means serenity. It means a life liberated from the fears which haunt and the anxieties which trouble. Doesn't it sound good? Have life without fear and life without anxiety. In God, there is power, and therefore eternal life means the defeat of frustration. It means a life filled with the power of God and therefore victorious in all circumstances. In God, there is holiness, and therefore eternal life means the defeat of sin. It means a life clothed with the purity of God and armed against the pollutions of the world. In God, there is love. Therefore, eternal life means the end of bitterness and hatred. It means a life which has the love of God in its heart and actions. And the last one, in God there is life. Therefore, eternal life means the defeat of death. It means a life which is indestructible because it has in it the indestructibility of God himself. I mean, so we die. It gets better after that. The life of God is indestructible. Now, as I just bring this to a conclusion here, to live like Jesus is going to take faith. With that faith, everything that Jesus is comes to us. Everything that God is comes to us. 